It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hawkins Policy Radio, offering a unique perspective on everything geopolitics, culture creation, the reality of the world we live in. To you live from New York City, your host, Pierce Redman. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Porkins Policy Radio. As always, I am your host, Pierce Redman, and you can find this show here at American Freedom Radio, AmericanFreedomRadio.com, as well as on my website, which is PorkinsPolicyReview.com. And you can also, uh, of course, follow the show through RSS uh, on YouTube, iTunes, and now brand new on TuneIn. So I am on TuneIn right now. There is a link on my website to, uh, to the, the TuneIn page. So if you use TuneIn, uh, definitely, um, you know, follow me through that. I believe you can do reviews and things like that on TuneIn. So if you can, you know, leave a review or... Um, you know, all that sort of stuff helps in, in terms of uh, more people seeing the show. Uh, I do have to kind of tweak uh, and tinker a little bit with the tune in page because uh, I, I, I did it um, a few nights ago uh, pretty late at night um, after I'd had a few. So <laughs> there's a, a few little things I got to fix. But anyway, uh, and uh, I will be adding some more Stitcher, um, maybe Spreaker as well, some other stuff. But uh, jam-packed show for you today, uh, one that I, I have been talking about uh, the past couple of weeks. I've been uh, promoting it. Uh, we are going to be discussing a uh, good friend of the show, frequent guest, Stephen Singular. Uh, we're going to be discussing his very first book, Talk to Death, which was published in 1987. 
<laughs> but uh, Stephen, how are you? It's good to talk to you again. Good. Thanks for having me on, Pierce. Good to be back. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Um, well, uh, Stephen, we uh, we've actually discussed uh, your first book, Talk to Death. Uh, I, I think on the, the very first time we ever recorded something together uh, talking about Legacy of Deception. And you've mentioned Talk to Death a few times in, in our conversations. And obviously there is a link um, between the subject matter of Talk to Death and Mark Furman and your, your research for Legacy of Deception. But um, the the book, of course, uh, deals with the uh, murder of a prominent uh, radio host, Alan Berg, in Denver, Colorado, by a neo-Nazi white power movement group called The Order. But, um, uh, Stephen, why don't you, you first give us a little bit of a, a background as to who is Alan Berg. I think many people, uh, sad to say, may not be so familiar with Alan Berg. Uh, and he is a fascinating character, uh, and uh, I, you know I I love the way you structured the book um, towards the beginning, where you, you sort of jump back and forth between Berg's life and uh, the 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 history of the order. But for the listeners out there who who may not be familiar, who is Alan Berg? Alan Berg was uh, a native of Chicago. He was born in 1930 in Chicago. Uh, grew up on the south side of Chicago from a Jewish family, which is is important in in the story. Uh, he he was a very energetic, funny young guy, and you know just he just had a lot of manic energy. Uh, when he got on the radio later, I always thought of him a little bit like Groucho Marx. If if people remember Groucho Marx, you know, with her with a microphone, he was very quick and and very witty. He started out in the law in Chicago, and he didn't like practicing law that much because he he felt that he was in some compromised legal situations. Later on, he would tell people that he was working for the mob and doing some, you know, dirty work legally for them. That may have been a little bit exaggerated. Sometimes he did exaggerate, but he just wasn't cut out to be in the courtroom and, and deal with the, some of the moral issues that came up. He started drinking and he sort of started going downhill. He was in his 20s and his 30s. He was making money, but he was really, really miserable. So as he just sort of descended, he didn't know what to do. His wife was named Judith Berg. She was from Denver. Uh, and he, he had met her by coming out to Colorado as a college student at the University of Colorado, and then they went back to Chicago and had all these episodes. So he, he was making money, he was successful, but he was very unhappy. So eventually the drinking led him to uh, his wife to say, we should get out of here, let's resettle in Denver. And he came to Denver in, I think, in the 60s, so he would have been in his 30s, and he was just sort of lost. He was he he loved fancy clothes and wearing clothes, so he opened a, a clothing store and then he opened a shoe store. But he wasn't happy in any of it. He was a he was a talker, you know, he was somebody who loved to engage with people intellectually and and just talk about things. One day this guy came into the store, his name was Lawrence Grossman and he I think he was gonna buy a pair of shoes or something and he started talking with Berg and he said, You know, you're you've got a good gift for, for Pat or for Banner. You know, maybe you should sit in on one of my shows. And so on a Sunday afternoon in Denver in the fall, which was during football season when everybody in the world pays attention to the Denver Broncos, he sat in and within ten minutes he had 
you know, completely overshadowed the host. He was naturally controversial. He was he would naturally say things that a lot of people wouldn't say. You know, the host, you can sort of picture his movie was saying, don't say that, don't say that. But, of course, he said it, and then people started calling in. And even despite the football game, there was a lot of action, and people were saying, who is this guy? You know, where did he come from? So when he was about 35, 36, he just stumbled into talk radio. And talk radio was not that old at that point also. there was It was sort of a new medium, and he had an absolute gift for provoking people, for making them laugh, uh, you know, for getting them all worked up. And he, and then he kind of went through a phase where he just decided to be very obnoxious on the radio. You know, some of the shock jocks in New York and other places were doing that. They were getting a lot of attention. So, you know, he'd hang up on people. He'd argue with them. And then at the, at the end of the 1970s, Denver media or television or something had a poll where they said, who is the most liked? and the most disliked media personality in Denver, and he won both awards. So that was sort of who Allenberg was. People loved him, people hated him, you know, but people listened to him. They, they, he said he called himself an addictive personality, and he said, I addict people to me. And, and there was a lot of truth in that. And he was just, he was a naturally funny sort of comic presence. I'll give you one example. He, he, you know, you weren't supposed to smoke in the, in the studio. He was a chronic smoker. And so he would smoke and when he would get excited, you know, he would put his cigarettes in the trash can and repeatedly he would start fires <laughs> in the studio yeah. during his show. The fire department would have to come out, you know, just this, he was just untamable in certain ways. So he was, uh, going on through that period and one day he, I, guest developed some headaches and other things, he had a, a grand mal seizure, which is a, a very serious thing. They examined him. He had a, a large brain tumor. The doctor said, you know, if he lives, he may never talk again. If he talks, you know, he'll never get back on the radio because this is just too serious of a thing. So he... You know, they operated a month later. He's back on the radio. He's just irrepressible talking. And he went on from there. He evolved away from being a really just a wild, obnoxious guy by the early 80s and, and was doing more serious programming and, 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 you know, engaging in political discussions, uh, which is part of the story here. Some of the, he would talk about racism. He would talk about anti-Semitism and all of these things. And he provoked a lot of people out there. There were a couple of guys in the KKK locally who would get on the radio and argue with him a lot. One day, one of those guys, who was actually in the fire department in the suburb, came running into the studio, looked at him and said, Berg, you're going to die. And this was, the early, this was, I believe, in 1979. But the guy didn't have a gun, and not that much came of it. But it just showed that how strongly he was provoking people. So by 1984, he was on the, the biggest radio station in this part of the country, probably between like uh, the Mississippi River in Los Angeles, which is KOA radio, 50,000 watts at night, at least at that time. And, uh, you know, it was reaching a lot of, of states. He was on at night. He was becoming more respectable. Uh, the 
but he was featured on 60 Minutes in January of 1984. So, People were, you know, he's, he was really making a name for himself, like Howard Stern and other people who we know of today. And the the radio station was going to send him to the Democratic Convention uh, in San Francisco that that uh, year. So that was, I mean, it was just he just went through an evolution where he was somewhat obnoxious, but now he was actually 50 years old in 1984, and he was starting to settle down. So that that's really his part of the story. Mm. Oh, and and again, uh, uh, Stephen, it, it's a a wonderful, fantastic book, and we you can uh, you know I'll link up to it on Amazon. Uh, I actually got uh, a, um, a a version of the or a, a copy of the book that was from the uh, Englewood Public Library in Denver. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's also a wonderful. I love the um, the back picture of you. It's 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 great to see young Stephen Singular. <laughs> Uh, you look very hip in the back. I like it. But um, long time. Uh, and um, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating. Like you were saying, uh, th- this character uh, of Alan Berg. Because when I was reading the book, I mean, the way you describe him in some of these moments, there were times where I kind of hated him. You know, I, I found him to be yeah. a bit of an asshole uh, and annoying in, in some of the ways that he conducted himself. But obviously, you know, um, I felt a, a strong connection to someone that does radio and uh, talks to people all the time. And there were these, you know, these other wonderful moments where you really see Berg as this amazing human being who really, you know, had something to give um, to his audience. And he wasn't just a shock jock. You know, I, I, I think right. that's important to, to point. I mean, he was much more intellectual than all of that. But as you said, he obviously angered many, many people. Uh, you, you know, you reference this incident where a guy came into the studio and told him he was in die. Uh, he had, um, he was, you know, somewhat paranoid and he, he, you talk about his apartment, uh, near Colfax Avenue where he, you know, he picked it because it was, it was high up, you know, it was like on the third floor and he could see all of the, you know, what was going on in the street. He had, um, tried to get uh, a permit to carry a, a concealed gun for a while. And he did attract uh, the attention of some very unsavory uh, far-right individuals in the Colorado area, but in the, the whole sort of, uh, you know, the, the, in the Pacific Northwest as well. And, uh, of course, the, the other main component of this book here is this group, The Order, which um, was a, 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 you know, a white power terrorist organization, a neo-Nazi group. Uh, it was founded in 1983 by Bob Matthews in uh, Medellin Falls in Washington, which is like right in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's right by the Canadian border. And uh, surprisingly, this group is not as well known to the public as you would think, which is a real shame because they really do represent like the prototype for all of these sort of far right terror groups and terror gangs that have sort of, uh, you know, come about uh, in the aftermath of uh, the the order's sort of rise and fall, and the legacy of the order, and also the way that the government responds to these groups. I, you know, for me, I saw it. You can see that in Ruby Ridge, in Waco, in the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, in groups like the Aryan Republican Army, which um, is very much seems like a spinoff of the order. Uh, things like Elohim City. Uh, which, you know, has uh, connections to, to OKC. Um, Stephen, explain a little bit about the order 
um, you know, what, what was this organization and how it sort of morphed out of um, the, the Christian identity movement? Right. Well, there prior to this, prior to the early 80s, you know, there had been the Ku Klux Klan and there had been other far-right organizations, the Posse Comitatus and others. Yeah. But most of it was talk. I mean, most of it, you know, they might have committed the occasional crime or someone might have gotten shot, uh, a minority person or killed, but it was, you know, it was a, a more isolated type of thing. When, in the, in the mid 70s, a man named William Pierce, uh, wrote a book called The Turner Diaries. And the Turner Diaries are, are infamous and have been ever since. It's an incredibly bloody, uh, book about a white power revolution by a small group of people called the order and they decide to eliminate in the United States uh, African Americans, uh, Hispanics, Jews, uh, gay people, feminists, liberal judges, everybody on their enemies list and that's like a hundred million people. So they decide that through, you know, bombs and, and other things, they're going to actually carry out this revolution. And this made its way into the hands of Bob Matthews, for example, who came up with the idea of creating a real order, of, of taking it from the world of fiction and actually bringing it into reality. All, all of the people around him really were brought together by the Aryans Nations Church up in Hayden Lake, Idaho. They were up in the, in the Northwest woods, very isolated, very few minority peoples up there, and they thought of themselves as these sort of white warriors that were going to conduct this revolution and bring it to life. So that all of them had studied this, and, and one of the things in there, of course, is assassination of their enemies. So they came together at the end of 1983. There were initially only nine people in the group, and some of them had come out of prisons where they had been recruited to the Air Nations Church. Some of them had come from other places. But they gathered there. They went out in the woods. They took an oath. You know, white power, we're the silent brotherhood. We'll never you know, share our secrets with anybody else or sell ourselves anybody out who's in the group. And they, you know, they took a vow. We're going to, we're going to make this happen. So gradually they pulled in more members. There were about 23 or four at the height of this thing. They started out with a few small robberies, uh, in order to get some money to get going. They got a, a printing press. They started counterfeiting money. Uh, and they, uh, decided to do some larger heist, but then they decided to have an assassination. You know, if we're really serious about this, we've got to, you know, follow through. So they talked about some prominent uh, Jewish people, Norman Lear, the Hollywood producer, Henry Kissinger, but one of the members, one of the founding members of the group was named David Lane, and he was from Denver. He had argued with Berg on the radio about racial issues, about all of those things, and he said, you know, this is our guy. Let's start with Berg, and then let's go on to, you know, bigger names. So they they made a plan. They scouted. They had one of their members scout Berg out at the radio station where he worked. They scouted out his home. They scouted out his schedule. And on June, like in mid-June, they came to Denver, four, four guys. Uh, one was named Richard Scutari. David Lane, Bob Matthews, who was the leader, and Bruce Pierce, 
who was a, a volatile character from Kentucky. And when he came home from work on the night of uh, June 18th, 1984, it was quite dramatic because one of the major sources in the book for me was his, his ex-wife, Judith Berg. Uh, she was a, a wonderful uh, talker, a wonderful source. She knew him better than anybody else knew him. And he went out to dinner with her that night. They came back. He pulled up in front of his townhouse. They sat in the car. She said, should I come in? Should I not come in? And they argued and argued. They, of course, did not know that the four neo-Nazis were parked right next to his driveway. Finally, they decided that she would go somewhere else that night. If they had pulled in the driveway, they would have killed both of them. But she went elsewhere. He dropped her off. He drove back pulled into the driveway, and Pierce was the gunman. He pulled out a MAC-10 automatic pistol and put 12 rounds into Berg's face and torso. And that that has become, for anybody who's followed this story or other stories connected to it later on, one of the iconic images of the violence of the far right. Berg lying dead in his driveway next to his car. And so it, that's happened. Uh, the four guys took off, and, you know, the, the Denver was left to try to solve the crime. At the time that it happened, I mean, there had never really been an organized right-wing, re- truly violent group like this. So they weren't immediately suspected. People thought, look, he, he pissed off everybody in Denver. Yeah, right. So I interviewed one of the police uh, detectives on it, and I said, How, "Do you have any suspects?" And he he pointed at the phone book and he said, "There are two million names in there. Everybody's a suspect, you know." So eventually, the the uh, the investigation grew. It grew out of Denver. It grew to include the FBI. The order kept committing crimes. They they killed another. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Instacart for the win. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Member of their own group. Uh, they did more robberies. And in July, I believe, of 84, they did a stick-up uh, outside of Ukiah, California, of an armored truck. And they got around $3.6 million. So here's this group that six months earlier had nothing, basically. And now they've got, you know, three, probably $4 million by that point. And, you know, they're buying cars and they're doing the kinds of things that draw attention to yourself. So now the FBI had come in and we're starting to think this is a, you know, a bigger crime than just one murder. 
And the investigation into the order became the largest investigation into domestic terrorism in American history. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty big thing. And so what looked like, you know, almost a random crime in Denver was part of a group that committed 240 crimes. And the, F, the feds got on them and began tracking them. They, uh, their break came in, on October 18th of 1984, which is four months to the day after Berg was killed. They were tracking one of the members of the group called Gary Yarbrough, who lived near Sandpoint, Idaho, and they went into his property and they went upstairs and they found all kinds of ammunition and things like that. But, and they found a shrine to Adolf Hitler and they found the gun that killed Berg and they got a match. So they knew, I mean, they kept the gun, which is, you know, not a smart thing to do. They got a ballistics match and then they knew who they were looking for. So over the course of the next couple of months, they rounded up, uh, most of the members of the group and they had a shootout with Bob Matthews, uh, on Whidbey Island up by Seattle eventually burned down the house that that he was in and he and killed him there so within the net within a couple more months they collected everybody and as you will recall i i said one of their initial names was the silent brotherhood you know to, they would be quiet till they were you know forever but as often happens in these cases when they got about the 24 core members of the group, about half of them decided to plead guilty and testify against the other half. So there was a very long trial held in Seattle in September of 1985, the fall of 85, which I attended. And, you know, half, the other half ended up getting convicted and going to prison. So while they were a small group, I mean, one of the things that they established was that you could create a lot of havoc with a, a small number of people. As I said, they committed 240 crimes. Ultimately, they killed five people, um, and they stole or counterfeited over $4 million, and they sent the FBI on a goose chase from Washington State to Georgia, where they eventually caught Bruce Pierce. So it covered the entire United States, and it was a massive uh, ordeal to get these people rounded up. And then, of course, uh, as you chronicled, uh, you know, in the, the uh, later uh, part, half of the book, I mean, they they were uh, convicted of RICO charges, you know, um, which is, you know, very serious uh, charges, you know, dealing with racketeering, conspiracy to racketeer, things like that. So uh, this was a huge, huge case, as you say, I and mean, one that um, people should be more um, – you know, aware of, especially the way it fits in in the narrative of these far right groups and things like that. And it's so it, against even it, it uh, you know, the the importance of the order, you know, as you point out, um, you know, in the, uh, as you just were pointing out, and of course, in the book, I mean, 240 crimes, including counterfeiting well over a uh, half a million dollars, if not perhaps counterfeiting a million dollars. Right. Um, you know, robberies. um upwards of four million dollars they murdered around five different people including berg um uh some uh i believe a police officer at one point yep. uh they they, they killed a brink security you know they were robbing brink security 
um, trucks. They blew up a synagogue as well. Uh, yep. And, you know, and it's so funny, you, you, uh, you, uh, several times in the book juxtapose this with, you know, their first major crime as, as the order. They, what, they robbed like a, like a pornography, yeah. uh, like a porn theater for like 300 bucks or something like that. Right. Um, right. And, and oh. then they, they, they go on to be this, you know, prolific group. Um, just fascinating. Um, and, and that they're, there's, there's so, you know, that they're not, well known, of course, or, or not as well right. known. Now, um, I, a couple questions uh, that I, I kind of wanted to, to just sort of parse out there. First, did you have any um, contact with, with people from within the order? I know you reference in the book, of course, some people um, like uh, Mackenzie, I believe is his last name, who um, yeah. he knew David Lane quite well. But did you ever get to, to talk with anybody from from the order? Well, I didn't. I didn't speak directly. I mean, by of course, by the time you know I got involved in this, mm. everybody had been arrested. I mean, Matthews right. did. These people were in lockdown in federal federal penitentiaries. You know, the racketeering charge, RICO charge, had been used mostly for organized crime, and the federal government, I think, very intelligently thought. You know, let's not go after the individual charges. Let's throw the biggest net over the most people we can and and say that this was a criminal enterprise. And that's what they did. So all of those were federal charges. There was a lot of debate about bringing Bruce Pierce back to Denver and trying him for the murder of Allen Berg, but they decided not to do that. So uh, I didn't couldn't interact with those people, but I interacted directly with people that they stayed with when they came to Denver to Kilberg, people who did surveillance, uh, mild surveillance for them in certain instances. And those people were quite scary. They were quite, I, I interviewed a guy who had argued at length with Berg on the radio about Israel and about some of the conditions in Israel. And Berg, Berg had been very kind of tormented about his own ethnic identity and his own you know, place in the world around that. And in, I think, the 83, I believe, early 80s, he'd gone to Israel. He had been very moved by the people there, by what he found there. And, you know, people were calling up on the radio and saying, well, the Holocaust didn't really happen, blah, blah, blah. And he became, you know, very serious and very emotional about it and very passionate about, you know, getting the truth out there. So I interviewed one of the individuals who argued with him about that on the radio and a, a few other people. And I, I personally received threats because of that. I mean, they knew that I was writing a book about, about this whole case and basically said, if you write anything, you know, we don't like, you know, you'll hear from us. And, and I'm, you know, I'm white. So they was like, you're betraying your race by writing about this and the, all of the rhetoric that they used. They were scary people. I mean, let, let's not, you know, overlook that fact in telling the story. They were scary and they were armed and they were dangerous. And, and this, again, this case was the first real example we saw of that, where it wasn't just an individual, it was an organized group who was, you know, committed basically to the death to fight this fight. So, yeah, I was deeply affected by writing the book. I, I had nightmares about it. I had a lot of uh, emotional turmoil around it because <laughs> they, they they made threats. Mm. Oh, and, and again, too, I mean, this isn't, um, 
you know, not 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 to say that like a the Klan isn't dangerous or scary, but for the most part, you know, as you say, uh, a lot of these these like far right or these racist groups were essentially talk, and and I, I want to get to that a little bit later on because you know we can look at uh, Richard Butler uh, and his church and the, the whole Aryan nations out in Idaho, where which was a, a, certainly a catalyst for much of this, you know, and a lot of these guys sort of came out of that yeah. particular uh, movement. Um, but they were essentially all talk. And that is in many ways why Matthews uh, and others decided to form the order was because they were sort of tired of, of talk and they wanted to, to make, uh, you know, real change. However, they, they saw that, which meant, you know, uh, setting up their the sort of, you know, their own state and and uh, recruiting and then eventually assassinations. And just to, again, to kind of point out the order, I mean, they were also quite ambitious for, a, you know, a, a group of like this. I mean, you talk about in the book, I mean, they, they tried to they did own airplanes uh, and they wanted to sort of, you know, create like their own air force. And they were in talks. I mean, you, it's just a, a small little part you mentioned, but they were in talks with people that were working in like technology or had contact with the arms industry to see if they could sort of funnel weapons to them. And then again, of course, uh, very much the case later, uh, you know, in the 90s with some of these far right groups getting military surplus and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you said, I mean, I can only imagine what that was like. And, um, you know, as you point out, too, I mean, they got away with it for quite some time. I mean, they were running around and nobody really had an idea about this. Um, I, uh, Stephen, I kind of wanted to uh, talk a little bit um, because, again, the order as this sort of prototype, um, you know, if you, you know, I mentioned many times on my show about Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bombing, there are certainly a lot of questions about what the government knew and McVeigh's true role in, in all of this. And there are lots of questions. But I will say with the order, I mean, this is true. Unlike many of the groups in the 90s that had that were filled with informants and agent provocateurs, the order really does seem organic. Uh, in the way that it sort of came into being. And, and um, uh, can you, you sort of talk a little bit about that? Because there's there's some really interesting running themes throughout the order in your book. This whole issue about uh, Vietnamese refugees uh, coming right. to America and stealing jobs. Um, the, you know, a, a lot of issues, um, you know, over the economy, things like that. But I, again, it, I found it interesting uh, for the parallels we see today, especially with this refugee issue, which gets brought up quite a bit um, by, uh, you know, these groups calling themselves the alt-right right now, uh, as well as, um, you know, there's a whole chapter in the in, in Talk to Death uh, where it's all, you know, it, it's, uh, I forget who it was exactly, but it was one of, you know, some character within uh, the order. And it, it, the chapter, it, it's uh, chapter 12 uh, white women give up on white men. And this whole thing, too, about how, you know, uh, women, uh, you know, hate white men because they've been poisoned by the Jews and and feminism and stuff. And that's another theme that you see all over with the alt-right, you know, all this stuff about uh, how women are being turned against men and and uh, it's evil and it's this whole big plot. So talk a little bit about the, the, the sort of sentiment going on. 
um, within, I guess, Colorado and within this sort of this area of, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest, Idaho, Washington, you know, how like what was it like uh, and that basically allowed for a group like the order to come into being? Well, it, it was really all of those themes that you're talking about, but it, it really comes down to a feeling of powerlessness and victimhood. I mean, it once, you know, once you define yourself as a victim, especially in social or political terms, you can justify just about anything. And, and those were the constant themes. I mean, that's what but, Reverend Butler, who had the church at Aryan Nations, constantly was preaching. You know, the worst thing you can do is mix the races. If if you mix black and white, you know, that's that's evil. I mean, so... Th- With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That's that's one of the themes that was there. Anti-Semitism always figures into this because they end up admiring Hitler. And, and, uh, you know, it goes back. The term you used earlier was identity Christianity. And that was a a not very uh, prominent ideology, or I, I dare to call it a religion. It wasn't a religion mm-hmm. that basically said that, you know, the the real Jews uh, are not the Jews that, you know, live in Israel or, uh, you know, that those people, but they're the lost tribes that came to the United States and they're really Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian. Mm. Uh, a highly discredited you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. piece of propaganda, but that's where it came from. You know, we're the real chosen people of God, not those people. And be, and those people, because, you know, they're not that, then, you know, we can do anything we want. And so, th- th- you know, that's what he was selling. You know, you feel powerless because of minorities. You feel powerless because women are taking over your jobs and you can't get a good job. Uh, this whole drumbeat of victimization. And, you know, in truth, these were, these were, you know, working class at best guys. I mean, lower class didn't have good jobs, didn't have good prospects for a good future. They were just sort, they were young guys, they were just sort of at loose ends, and this, you know, kind of seeped out into their minds, you know, well, maybe we can have power in a different way. So at the Vietnam angle is, is very interesting because, you know, I grew up in the 60s when the left was very much against the Vietnam War. And so, there were, you know, a lot of protesting against that. But this is 15 years later, and these guys are, 
some of them, I mean, they were saying really the same thing. Why did our government send us to war if we couldn't win? You know, now we have all these refugees in the country. They're taking our jobs too. So it all just, it all just sort of fit together that, you know, we're white people and, and we're, we're the real victimized or becoming the victimized minority now. And it's a, I mean, it's a very insidious, uh, ideology or propaganda, but, you know, if you if you didn't have much going for you, and this was being preached at you constantly, both you know in the church and outside of the church, it started to make sense. And to some of these guys, and I, and I think I'm gonna I will throw in one other thing here because it's really a theme that runs through this whole story as it goes on beyond the order, and that is when you put out an ideology like this or a set of ideas. It's, it's very easy to attract people who are not mentally stable. You know, this is a very important point in this story that some of the guys were just, you know, down on their luck and, and susceptible to really bad ideas and got sucked into something and, and they ended up basically turning on the order after being arrested. But all it takes is one mentally unstable person to create a lot of, a lot of trouble. And that person in this case was Bruce Pierce. Bruce Pierce, again, was a, a young man from Kentucky. He had mental instability and he was drawn into this group and he was the killer. You know, a lot of people will talk about killing. A lot of people have, will use rhetoric. But when it comes down to pulling the trigger and doing the work, they won't do it. Bob Matthews didn't do it. You know, he effectively committed suicide when, when they were coming after him. David Lane wouldn't do it. I mean, the, the, the great story about David Lane was he was, you know, always on the radio arguing and he was going to have a white power revolution. But when they shot Berg, you know, he was sitting in the car, he crapped his pants. You know, he literally lost it in the car. So not everybody can kill somebody. The other guy uh, wasn't that significant, Richard Scutari. But Pierce was unstable, and he had no problem going up to this guy and shooting him right smack head on and killing him. And that theme becomes important as the story goes on. So when you create those conditions, you just have to keep that in mind because we've seen it again and again and again in one story after another, which involves far-right ideology. So uh, all of those things came together in this movement, and it, it didn't attract a lot of people, but it attracted people who were committed enough to put it into action, and that's, you know, that's what's really important. Well, again, too, I mean, the, the emphasis that, at, at its height, the order really consisted of about 25 people. There were certainly people that sympathized with them, like Butler and, and um, the uh, what's the, the other group, um, uh, Covenant Sword and the Order of the Lord. Lord. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there were groups that uh, sympathized with them that maybe had more members. But essentially, we're talking about a group of 25, and even of that 25, really maybe nine of them that were – you know, integral in carrying out much of the violence and stuff. Um, right. I mean, yeah, Bruce Pierce uh, comes off as a truly frightening character uh, throughout the book, as does uh, Gary Yarborough, yeah. um, uh, who uh, w w he was in the Aryan Brotherhood. I mean, this was a guy that knew the, the, you know, had been in the white power movement for some time, had been in prison, really had no qualms about extreme violence and things. And it yeah. is, you know, as you said, I think it's important to point out that um, 
there are multiple people within the order that uh, had serious issues with what was going on. And I, I found that to be one of the, the really interesting um, several moments in the book where you, you, you talk about this sort of like crossroads. Um, like, for instance, I mean, the, the large scale robberies, you know, when they start robbing armored trucks, um, when when they go from robbing some banks, you know, for significant amount, you know, fifty thousand dollars in cash or, um, you know, sums like that, which is nothing to, to scoff at back in the 80s. But when they elevate that to suddenly they're uh, involved in in robberies with, you know, one, two million dollars, they're no longer just, they're you know, some little group out in the mountains. Now, suddenly they're a, um, a huge entity. Um, and, uh, Stephen, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, these the sort of crossroads moments, but particularly the evolution of the group, because they do start out with having, you know, strong political convictions, however warped they might be. Right. Uh, and, of course, you you point out some of the, the odd schizophrenic nature of, uh, you know, a lot of the, the far right idea, you know, where the, they'll, they'll one day, they'll, you know, they'll 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 sound like your, you know, typical racist uh, sort of fascist mentality. And then other times they'll sound like, you know, communists, you know, the, the things that might come out of their mouth uh, or they, they'll, they'll sound like the far left, um, yeah. you know, when they're talking about banks and the way the money is controlled, things like that. But um, talk a little bit about the, the how they went from being a, a group that had strong political convictions or had a particular political message, however fucked up it was to basically they more, they did essentially just turn into a criminal enterprise that was more concerned with their own self-preservation and infighting within the group. You know, I mean, you, you talk about when Pierce and Yarborough sort of want Matthews to sort of step back from power. Um, you talk about uh, when they were, you know, they assassinated um, a group um, within the uh, the order for, for right. basically talking. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, they really aren't much more than very successful bank robbers um, with racist ideology. So talk a little bit about that, because I think that's important in understanding the, the legacy of the order, but also a lot of, you know, it doesn't have to be far right. It can be any radical group. That a basic, you know, at, at some point, many times they kind of have to succumb to becoming a criminal entity in order to sustain themselves. So talk about that, Stephen. Right. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that you know it's not like there's a real structured organization. You know, it's just somebody <laughs> who who starts this, which which turned out to be Bob Matthews, who who at the beginning was the most fiery and the most charismatic, and and all of that. And then inevitably, as time went on, you know, if you get eight, nine months into this, uh, things fracture. You know, there are factions that pop up and they don't like his leadership and they don't think he's strong enough and all of that. The other factor that's interesting is that they got money. These were people who didn't have any money. You know, they were either working at real down-and-out jobs like in, you know, in a mine or some other job or or they were unemployed or they were coming out of prison like Gary Arbro. So you rob, you know, the, the Ukiah job uh, with the armored truck and you get $3.6 million and you start divvying that up 
And what did they do? They started buying cars. You know, they started buying material goods for themselves that were better than anything they'd ever had. So first of all, that's a big distraction. Second of all, it leaves a trail, you know, for, for the authorities to find. And third of all, I mean, if maybe if you have a hundred thousand dollars in your pocket, you're not so committed to revolution. <laughs> you know, as the, the big pull on this really was that they, they were Totally unsuccessful. I mean, they could not adapt to a, to a, you know, a society that was changing around them. That's what I really found fascinating about, about writing the book. There's all the racism, you know, and all the anti-feminism and all of that stuff that kind of circles around it. But when I broke it down, it was people who just, they, they were, they couldn't adapt to the society that they were living in that was changing very quickly. You know, it was changing racially, it was changing sexually, it was changing technologically, it was doing all of these things. And they just fell back on this incredibly primitive mythology, basically, that says, you know, we're, no, we're Norse gods, we're going to be like Viking gods. I mean, the most mm-hmm. primitive thing you could <laughs> come up with. And they couldn't just you know, figure out how to cope in the society they were living in, then somebody throws in a racial ideology or or Butler's sermons, and, you know, it appeals to them. So it it was, in other words, it was a very fragile organization to begin with. And once they started having success, you know, criminal success, what you're saying is true. It was like other criminal enterprises. You know, it's like you watch The Sopranos, you know. Some, there's some younger guy wants more power. He wants some of Tony's power coming up. And this was the same way. So they were challenging Matthew's leadership. They were ready to, you know, bust out on their own and all of that. So it, it could never have lasted, you know, that long, even if the authorities had not gotten on their trail. Because it was, it, it is what you're saying. It was a criminal enterprise more than anything else. And uh, something, again, uh, that struck me, and it really does come across when you're reading the book, is this notion of a group of uh, mostly, you know, young men. I guess most of them were in their 30s, some were in their 40s, uh, that that couldn't adjust to this sort of changing, you know, time around them, that the world was changing. And that, of course, I think is, you know, echoes of that are being felt today. Where, you know, again, these people, uh, you know, uh, unable to accept that, that perhaps somebody doesn't want a Confederate statue, you know, in their town square anymore. Right. Um, right. Or that, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, name a, name a minority group that they might want their own, you know, rights or, or their own protections or st- things like that. Uh, there's so much change going on. And, you know, believe me, I, I find a lot of, the, the sort of fast-paced technological changes and things like that, scary and, uh, you know, upsetting at times. But there is that 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 sort of uh, moment where you kind of have to realize, you know, the world is changing. I need to kind of accept this to some degree. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit, Stephen, because, um, you know, I, I mean, there, there's some other little bits and, and pieces. Um, maybe we'll get to a little bit in the second hour. But let's talk about that because there there is so much of that is present. Uh, with the order where, um, you know, they're, they're, they're always, uh, in the early days, they're always sort of talking, you know, there's no factory jobs and God, I can't work in the mine. I got, you know, fired from the sawmill. And we hear that kind of rhetoric even today. Um, people referring to those sorts of jobs that haven't even existed in America for like, you know, two decades, really. Um, and what, what do you make of that? This sort of constant, cause it, it almost like takes like the idea of like conservatism to another level where they're trying to go back to a, a something that they didn't even really know. You know, we've, we've people today talking about, you know, bringing back the, you know, jobs from overseas. I mean, these jobs don't exist. There, there, there's no reason they haven't existed in our, you know, like in my lifetime, you know, I, I see people around my age talking about this and, they didn't even know that. And right. t- talk about that a little bit, because that certainly seems to be at the core of much of the order's ideology. Well, I, I think, yeah, I think all of that's, that's very true. And I think one of the important parts about that is, is, is what tone you set at the top. I mean, you know, we live in a highly complex society. It's highly complex racially. Uh, in all kinds of ways, we live in a very, in a very, very complicated society in which we have to have awareness of that, tolerance of differences. All of these things sound rather simplistic. I, I think maybe when people hear them, but for, it, for me, it was the biggest takeaway from the book. It wasn't that these guys were inherently evil racist. Um, maybe a few, maybe a couple of them were. But it was that they couldn't adapt to this changing culture, and that, and then they were being encouraged not to adapt by an authority figure, which was in this case Reverend Butler at his Aryan Nations Church. He was giving it this patina of not—it's not respectability, but of, an, of some sort of authority. You know, this is religion-based, this is politically based, or this is you know based on something. And so if you extrapolate that out and and you which is really where the story goes from the order, and let's just say in a, in a theoretical America, um, you know, let's just say 30 years later, somebody comes along and starts talking about white power or somebody's working in the White House and they're a white nationalist. That stuff matters. That stuff filters down and filters out. And the, the order model is very small. Again, that's what's important about it. Nine guys or 25 people at its height. But when these ideas start to filter out and reach a higher level of, of respectability, 
it's hitting it's hitting those people out there. There are a lot of people out there who are frustrated. They feel unemployed or underemployed or they can't compete or they can't get ahead or they can't adapt to this incredibly changing society. And this this is I think the bigger the bigger lesson of the whole story. So, you know, what we talk about, what we promote, what we encourage makes a difference. If it's diversity, if it's tolerance, if it's all of those things, it's affecting the population. If it's uh, white nationalism or some sympathy with that or pitting one group against another group, it matters. And that is where the story, I think, sort of moves out of the 80s and comes into a larger perspective. And that's, you know, I've written about that in, in other contexts. But that's, I think, very, very important in understanding this story. And then the third component of that is what I said earlier. Not only are you hitting that sort of more normal population, but you're also hitting an at-risk population. There are 40 million people in the United States who are considered to have some form of mental illness or disability. 40 million. That's a lot of people. So when you start spewing the rhetoric, when you start you know, encouraging that kind of thinking. Who are you hitting? What population are you really connecting with? And this, the thing about the Berg story is that that's when the innocence around all this was lost. I mean, I talked to his colleagues after he was killed, you know, who'd worked at the radio station or worked with him earlier, and they said, hey, we just thought we were having a, a conversation on the radio. You know, that's all. We didn't know if we were talking to five people, 500 or 5,000 hmm. or, or more. And we never took it, you know, that seriously, and we never thought that we were having that much of an impact. And then, boom, somebody shows up and shoots this guy, and it's like, well, maybe we better think about, you know, more about what we're doing here. And it's interesting, in the Denver market, now this is 1984 and today is 2017, there's never been anybody remotely like Allen Berg. Denver is an extremely, from a radio point of view, extremely conservative. I mean, it, 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 I think it scared management really badly. <laughs> that he, you know, he was provocative enough that something like this would happen. And we've never, I mean, we don't have, I, I, I'm a radio person, and I don't, can't think of any liberal voice in the market. And, and too, I mean, and it wasn't as if Berg was, uh, you know, the sort of like died in the wool liber liberal in the, in the sense that, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, I mean, he, he had varying opinions and stuff, you know, and he would, uh, you know, you, you, you point out in the book, I mean, he had some very interesting views on, on women and, and, you know, uh, how his, you know, girlfriends and, and whatnot should act. So, but, I think you're so spot on there in that they're, they're just, there isn't an Allen Berg really anywhere that I can think of, you know, on like mainstream talk radio. Um, yeah. you know, there are people that are loud and obnoxious, you know, like a Rush Limbaugh or, yeah. you know, Don Imus has become, but there isn't somebody uh, like Berg that, that exists to sort of, uh, to, to make you think somewhat. Um, right. And it was, you know, it was it was very interesting. Uh, Stephen Reading talked to death uh, and, and sort of the picture you paint of Denver in the 80s and, and sort of juxtaposing that with, um, you know, like Boulder uh, and, you know, the John Bonet case with, you know, two very different cities, I take it. 
Right, um, right. Denver is um, conservative. I mean, he shook people yeah. up. Right. Well, uh, we're we're uh, we're coming up on the break uh, right now. Uh, I'm going to try and get Stephen to stick around uh, for maybe another 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so. Uh, a few more questions. So uh, okay. stay tuned. We'll be here with Stephen Singular talking about Talk to Death, his uh, very first book, Life and Murder of Alan Berg. Since the beginning, civilizations have risen and fallen. Rome, ancient Persia, Mongolia, Britain, and now America. The fallen by natural disasters, broken families, moral decay, lack of preparedness and conflict. Don't let this happen to you. Are you prepared? Would you like to help others prepare? AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com is looking for distributors. Email BugOutAmerica at USA.com. Go to AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, a veteran-owned and operated company. But do it today. We all know that they're not telling us the truth. So stand up for your rights, demand the real medicine, and your right to use it and grow it. This is Rick Sensen, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. And I hope people support American Freedom Radio. And I hope people vote with their dollars and really understand the value of having American Freedom Radio. Because that's my family. If you love me at all, Jack Blood, support American Freedom Radio. Like, my family has literally disowned me. <laughs> American Freedom Radio, Danny and Don and those guys, those are my actual family. So please, please support these guys because they have all the technology. They have all these great things that they're going to do. But obviously, they can't do it all by themselves. So not only would I like to see you support them, I'd like to see you retweet them and repost them and really get involved and get on the, the bandwagon, so to speak, on doing that do-it-yourself promotion because they're a do-it-yourself radio network, and, uh, and we just need that so much. And when we're not invading some sovereign nation or setting it on fire from the air, which is more fun for our Nintendo pilots, then 
Then we're usually declaring war on something here at home. Did you ever notice that about us? We love to declare war on things here in America. Anything we don't like about ourselves, we declare war on it. We don't do anything about it. We just declare war on it. It's the only metaphor, the only metaphor we have in our public discourse for solving problems, declaring war. We have to declare war on everything. We have a war on crime, the war on poverty, the war on litter, the war on cancer, the war on drugs. But you ever notice we got no war on homelessness, huh? No war on homelessness. You know why? There's no money in that problem. No money to be made off of the homeless. If you can find a solution, if you can find a solution to homelessness where the corporate swine and the politicians could steal a couple of million dollars each, you see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty quick. I'll guarantee you that. I will guarantee you that. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio and service to the community with strength, wisdom and loyalty. The founders of AFI wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com or volunteer by emailing AmericanFreedomRadio at Ymail.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs and artillery batteries not included. We're now in the approach phase. Everything looking good. Leading to the old Prepare your mind to experience American Freedom Radio. Policy Radio, offering a unique perspective on everything, geopolitics, culture creation, the reality of the world we live in. Coming to you live from New York City, your host, Pierce Redman. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Porkins Policy Radio. I am your host, Pierce Redman. If you are just joining us right now in the second hour, we are joined once again by our good friend and frequent guest on the show, Stephen Singular. We are discussing his very first book, uh, Talked to Death, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg. And we've been dis- discussing, of course, uh, The Order, this uh, far-right terrorist organization slash criminal enterprise that assassinated Alan Berg. And, um, Stephen, you, you also sent me a very interesting article um, that um, you wrote. Uh, I think this was just after uh, the uh, murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. And, um, and you talk about in, in this article, you talk about um, some of the stuff with, with uh, Alan Berg and, and the order, as well as uh, some other um, – uh, stories and, and things that you've uh, been following. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. 
uh, off the top of my uh, the Wichita Divide, right, which is right. about the murder of of George Tiller, who is a, a very famous doctor, um, an abortionist who um, was uh, murdered in in Wichita, and um, you know it, it's it was a fascinating article to read, and, and it obviously so many parallels with uh, talk to death and and you know the, the whole um, white power movement and, and the far right, but let's um let, let's talk a little bit about uh, where we where we're at right now. Um, you know, I think within thankfully, I guess on on some level, the, the sort of um, loud racist uh, you know um, fighting has sort of died down since Charlottesville. I mean, there you know right. um, there are still people sort of harping on about the, well, the alt-left is to blame. No, the alt-right is to blame. Oh, uh, you know, and sort of trading um, kind of garbage back and forth. But um, let's let's talk about where we're at right now, because obviously this stuff doesn't disappear. Uh, and I don't think, you know, an incident like what we saw in Charlottesville is sort of isolated. Um, and again, you know, I think people should really pick up a copy of Talk to Death to read because, um, you know, when – the order was founding itself in the in the very early 80s, 1983. Um, you know, this sentiment was out there. But as you said, I mean, it wasn't um, they weren't, you know, turning it into to actual of You know, it wasn't being actualized. Right. So this is violence and stuff. And I think. You know, we, we've sort of uh, been in that phase right now in America, you know, particularly after uh, the, the horrors of like Oklahoma City. Um, when we saw that, you know, at that point, that was sort of the, the end of, of far right terrorism for some time. And, and you know, there's a, a variety of reasons, you know, first and foremost, I think, is the, the massive infiltration of these groups by the government and, you know, right. arresting many people and, and things like that. But we do seem like we've sort of reached that that point again um, where, where suddenly it's not just about protesting, you know, and you see that with. With some of these people uh, out, you know, well, you know, well, I had to, you know, beat this protester because they were going to attack me. And, you know, the the time for talk is sort of over, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, what what is going on right now, Stephen? I mean, you, you I think you have a really interesting take on, on this stuff. And, you know, you've been looking at this for many years. But I mean, how do you see the the alt right, whatever you want to call it at the moment? How do you see it? manifesting right now and you know what are there connections to things like the order and 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 the situation that you described back in the 80s well the the point i was trying to make in the article i'll start with that is is and i wrote it after charlottesville is that in the order again you you gathered a group of people but there was one person in particular who was who was mentally unstable and he became violent he actually killed Berg. for the rest it was a lot of talk then you leap forward to 2009 and i wrote a book about dr george tiller in wichita probably the nation's best known abortion doctor uh, who had operated within the law there ever since Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. So for 36 years, he had worked within the law and, and all of that. And the point I was making was that, that Bill O'Reilly of Fox News, for years and years, had, had used this phrase, Tiller the baby killer, Tiller the baby killer, and essentially was, you know, putting ideas out there for people and one of the people that those ideas interacted with was a guy named Scott Roeder who had a long history of mental illness. And in May of 2009, he shows up in 
Tiller's Church in Wichita and shoots him to death. So you saw it in the Bird case, and you saw it here. The big difference is Reverend Butler in the woods in Idaho is talking to 20 or 30 people. O'Reilly's reaching 3.5 million people on some nights when he was on the air. The rhetoric mattered. The tone that you set matters. The words matter. And you're, you're hitting a population with some people who are very much at risk. So we jump forward to 2017. We have an event in Charlottesville. Somebody gets killed. You know, who's the killer in this case or the, the, the alleged killer, we should probably say? He's a man named James Fields, Jr. He has a long history of mental illness. And I, what I think is interesting is that you had this sort of, you know, I love the term dog whistle <laughs> that mm-hmm. people use in these circumstances, which is, which really means that you don't come out and say what you mean if it has a, a racist undertone or overtone or something like that, but you use certain words that everybody kind of knows what they mean and they stimulate people who hold those ideas. And you were seeing a lot of that, you know, in the early days, the earliest days of the Trump administration. You know, sort of coming out of there, the rhetoric, the the ideas, having Steve Bannon sitting right next to the president, who is a, apparently or allegedly a white nationalist, however you choose to define that term. It's very similar to the terms that people were kicking around when I wrote my first book, Talk to Death, that we've been speaking about here. Uh, it's It's a very distressing, disturbing idea that somebody embracing those ideas would be a major uh, counselor to the president. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. President of the United States, who was saying in certain phrases or certain ways some of the same things. Again, what that message goes out, that message emboldens people who hold those ideas. I mean, this isn't some preacher in the woods. This is the president of the United States or his advisors that are giving some weight and some credence to these kinds of ideas. It's interesting that now, you know, uh, another person with severe mental health issues emerges, kills somebody, and this stuff seems to be ramping back a little bit. I mean, I, I at least I think it is. Bannon has gone from the White House. We're not hearing, you know, as much about him and his ideas, at least in connection to the White House. Trump may be a little bit sobered up by this. And, you know, it, it's that same idea that this stuff has consequences. What you create at the top 
filters down and it hits all kinds of people through media, through speeches, through oratory, through all of those things. And it hits people at an emotional level. If you're in the broad, you know, mainstream of people, you'll hear it, you'll process it, and you'll go on. If you hold those ideas already, they're going to make you feel legitimized and stronger and and, and more capable of, of exerting your power. If you're mentally ill, hey, maybe you'll get in your car in Ohio, drive to Charlottesville, and start running over people. So when, at what point, you know, do we kind of absorb that lesson? At what point do we do we think maybe we have to think about the consequences of our words? You know, because when you get into these areas of, of race baiting, which is essentially what it is, or, or dividing people through ethnic reasons or all of that, I've covered this subject for 30 years and it, it that's what it boils down to. There are consequences of that behavior and when the President of the United States or those close to him are engaging in it, it's dangerous. It takes a couple of people. It took Timothy McVeigh or I, I don't, I'm not that familiar with the McVeigh story, but I don't think a lot of people were involved in that. You know, who knows, to bring down a building. It doesn't take many people to create havoc from a domestic terror point of view. And I think that's a big, that's a part of the story that doesn't get dwelled on as much because it breaks down into politics and race and ideology and all that. How about mental health? There are a lot of people out there on the, on the margins and they, some of them gravitate you know, towards these kinds of ideas. So I would hope that Mr. Trump and those around him might have learned something from Charlottesville, despite what they said in the, in the aftermath of it. You know, this stuff is dangerous. Mm. Oh, and I, and I think uh, you're correct uh, in uh, your assessment of it. And they, they do seem to have sort of um, realize that at least in a broader uh, game of politics in Washington, it doesn't work, you know, and, and we've now seen, you know, uh, Seb Gorka is gone, Steve Bannon is gone, you know, and of course, the, the hardcore Trump supporters, this is all part of the plan, you know, this is the, the, the globalists and the Jews that are sort of, you know, orchestrating this and, and whatnot. But, you know, obviously he, Trump on, on some level understands that this isn't, it's not necessarily good politics. Right. Uh, and that there there are serious consequences to this. Um, and I guess I, you know, I, one thing, Stephen, because I I do I think the mental health issue is is a is an important component. Um, I will say sometimes I find that it it gets tossed around too much. You know, like there's always that. Uh, you know, if they're a white terrorist, they're there's they're always mentally ill. But if it's a Muslim, yeah. they're just sort of evil or something like that. And I, I wonder too. I mean, I think. Um, the, with the mental health thing, I mean, it, that seems like this sort of wonderful, like low intensity conflict, uh, sort of a, a tactic where, you know, eventually, if you say enough of this stuff, eventually you're going to get a nut who, you know, right. decides to do something like that. But what do you, I mean, what do you think of the, the more sort of, you know, intellectual, the, the, the sort of, um, the more uh, well thought out, uh, people within the far right group. I mean, what, how do you see them uh, is sort of evolving as, as we're moving forward right now? Um, or, or do you have, you know, who knows? I mean, any idea? It's all, it's all a reaction to 
you know, the world that we're living in, which is a highly, again, to repeat myself, it's a highly complex world. I think what we're, what we're really called upon to do, and we never really thought about this maybe in terms of politics or citizenship, but what you're called upon to do is to adapt and to adapt quickly. I mean, it's, it, when I wrote about Berg, it was almost, to me, it almost seemed like a biological thing. Like some of us as, you know, animals on the planet can adapt more quickly, and some people can't adapt as quickly. So you don't want to encourage those people not to adapt. That, that is what you don't want to be doing. I mean, if there was, if, if there was real, you know, leadership at the top, I think that's even something you could talk about that would be a useful thing for the entire society. Change is hard. Change is uncomfortable. Change is disruptive. Change is necessary. And we're called upon to do it more and more and more because of the acceleration of our own society and our own history. And we don't talk about these things publicly. I mean, that that's not, you know, something that's talked about. So when people use those arguments that that rely upon race or rely upon you know the the comparison of race or the division of race or all of that the the world is not going backwards the world is going to become more complicated more entangled more entwined through all of those all of the groups you know gender everything I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's the good fight that you fight because if you go on the other side, it, 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 you know, it's, it's the past, it's history. I mean, again, this may sound simplistic, but I think we have to keep that in front of us and we have to encourage people to accept and adapt. And the people who commit these crimes, the people who gravitate toward these groups are looking for a reason not to do that. They're looking for a reason to confirm their victimhood on some level. And some of these people may be very wealthy. You know, they may have lots of I've known very wealthy people who've embraced some of these ideas. They have everything the world has to offer, and they still feel like a victim. And once that is in place, once that's encouraged by groups, by politicians, you're setting up the conditions for trouble. That's what I've learned over 30 years of writing about this. So, you know, we have, I think, some obligation, you know, even as citizens to, you know, to make that adaptation because that's the world we're now living in. It's not the world that I was born into, which was much more stratified and, you know, divided up and, you know, compartmentalized. It doesn't exist anymore. And we've got to make that transition. Oh, and, and it, this disconnect from reality is is super dangerous for anyone to have. Right. Uh, you know, you, you know, it doesn't have to be a far right group. You could be a far left group. You could be a a radical, you know, Islamic group. You could be a right. radical Jewish group. I mean, it doesn't. You know, once you sort of um, enter into this mindset where you just sort of refuse to accept the reality, you know, the world that is around you and how it works and how it functions and, and that the only way to combat this is, um, you know, to, you know, murder somebody or blow up a building or, I mean, you know, you've, you've sort of lost it at that point. I mean, there, there's nothing really that you're going to gain from that. Uh, and that's, you know, just a funny thing I found, a lot of time with, with, you know, all the different characters in the order is just, you know, I mean, their ideas are, are just, they, they, 
they had to know it was never really going to happen. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but they, they, they do remove themselves so much from reality. Um, you know, to the point where they really truly seemed committed to the idea that they could form their own nation that would stretch from, you know, the Colorado Rockies all the way across to, you know, upper Washington and Idaho and Wyoming and Montana, you know, this would be a new white homeland and, um, you know, it's very, very kind of, uh, ridiculous. Um, but of course, I mean, that's, you know, the power of, of these ideologies. Um, Stephen, just one or two very quick things and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, of course there is the, we, we mentioned Gary Yarborough who, um, was uh captured uh up in uh, just outside of Sandpoint, Idaho, and I hope uh, everyone remembers Sandpoint, Idaho is of course where uh our good friend Mark Furman lives and where he moved after uh leaving the LAPD in the middle of the OJ Simpson trial. Um Stephen, that is how you, of course, got to write Legacy of Deception. Someone had read Talk to Death and talked about a connection. Did you, is there anything you've learned since then? Did Furman have any connection to, to on the periphery of, of some of the people within the order? Or was it just a matter of, uh, you know, Sandpoint, Idaho was a well-known place for neo-Nazis to go? Yeah, I don't, I don't have any evidence that he was actually connected to hmm. them, but if, you know, he obviously wanted to get away from minority people. I mean, there aren't minorities up there hardly at all or any Jewish population to speak of. So, yeah, it was a natural place for him to go. I mean, the the point of all that was is that, again, the first book was about people who were truly on the outside, marginalized people. And by the time of the Simpson case, you know, the person you're talking about is wearing a badge and a gun and wielding quite a bit of authority. It's not a small thing anymore. And as we've seen, you know, in the last 23 years since that case began, I mean, we've seen example after example of, you know, racial issues in police departments, you know, planning of evidence, all of those things have come back again and again and again. So, I mean, they were here last weekend in protests in St. Louis. So it's not like all of that's been resolved. Mm. No, and uh, of course, too, when you, you look at um, the order and talk to death and you look at, as you said, I mean, these were people on the fringes. Yeah. And then you move to uh, Legacy of Deception and, and, and Mark Furman. Now, suddenly, this is a man with quite a bit of respectability. Uh, yeah. I think, we could, you know, people respected Mark Furman, um, even though, he, you know, he was not a nice person. He had a gun. He had power. He had influence. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, you can continue with that trajectory to where, you know, you've got people in Washington, D.C. sitting in the White House with a tremendous amount of power um, yeah. and, uh, you know, respectability. I mean, you know, um, and uh, essentially harboring many of the same ideas and ideologies. Uh, and that's a very interesting legacy. I mean, uh, before I let you go, anything you want to just sort of leave the listeners with in terms of that kind of stuff? Well, I, I think it's just, you know, it's just how we choose to participate in our own lives and in our own society. And I think everything we've been talking about indicates that, you know, it re- it really does matter. I mean, there are consequences for for those types of things. The order 
was very small. It was a very small group of people. But when you look at the havoc they created, that they could send the FBI on a nationwide investigation, spend countless resources on, on rounding these people up, kill five people, steal all that money, you know, it doesn't take a lot of people to really unleash chaos. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind if you're encouraged. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. People to think in these ways, you know, because I think it starts at the top and filters down. Mm. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, of course, uh, Stephen, I'd love to have you back on uh, soon to to talk about pretty much anything. I always love having you on. But um, uh, two quick things. Tell everybody where they can go to uh, find out all about your work. And, uh, you know, you've, you've written many, many books. Uh, I was just before we we uh, went on the air, I was I was uh, perusing and I definitely want to have you on to discuss a few other ones, uh, perhaps a spiral notebook. Yeah. Um, at some point, I'd, I'd love to get into that with you. But tell everybody where where can they go to find your work? And uh, Stephen, are you working on anything uh, currently right now? Uh, not. Um, I'm working on some new developments in the Ramsey case, which might interest you. Mm. You know, I think I was on speaking with you about that, and there have been a few things going on around that. So I've I've been furthering that book. You know, it, it's up. Yeah. The Kindle book, so I can make changes in it as as the case goes along, and I've been doing that. But anyone who's interested can go to Stephen Singular S T E P H E N S I N G U L A R dot com Stephen Singular dot com, and all the books are there, and all the other things, the website. So yes, uh, I would invite anyone to go there, and 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 the, really, I've explored these themes that I'm talking about with Pierce. For about 30 years, Pierce has been absolutely great in opening up these doors of communication into stories uh, that people don't want to talk about it from certain angles. He's done a great job with that. For those who are out there who are listening, I know he's done it with people besides me, with subjects besides the ones I write about. And it's very important to keep, you know, this kind of programming going. Oh, well, th- thank you so much, Stephen. And, uh, of course, encourage everyone to go to stephensingular.com, check out all that. Uh, thank you so much for, for the kind words, Stephen. It's always uh, yeah. a pleasure having you on. And I will definitely, uh, I'll be getting in contact with you soon, uh, you know, talk about the, this uh, John Bonet updates and things like that. And, of course, just to reiterate what, what Stephen was saying, that he's been following this stuff for 30 years, and there, there is a, quite a lot 
to explore that the uh, media uh, generally tends to sort of ignore. So definitely encourage people to explore all that. Stephen, thank you so much uh, for joining me today, and uh, I will definitely be talking to you very soon. All right, Pierce. Thanks a lot. Well, uh, excellent, excellent. I I did not know that uh, Stephen was has some uh, John Benet Ramsey news, so I'll have to I'll have to give him a call once I'm done uh, on the show and, and and see what that is, and and uh, I definitely get Stephen back on uh, to discuss that. I I really too just want to stress uh, how good Talk to Death is. It's a it's a classic. Uh, Stephen Singular style book. Uh, if people have read, you know, Legacy of Deception or Presumed Guilty or other things, I mean, it, uh, Stephen's got a wonderful way of uh, presenting uh, true crime and, and talking about it. And as I mentioned uh, briefly in the beginning, um, you know, he it jumps back and forth between uh, Berg's uh, sort of, you know, from his childhood through out you know his whole career in chicago and then in 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 denver and you know uh his sort of uh, trials and tribulations it jumps between that you know one chapter will be that and then the next chapter will be uh talking about the the history of the order the history of the white power movement christian identity and it's wonderful you know the way stephen jumps back and forth throughout the book uh and it 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 creates this real sense of dread too because you start to see uh you know the 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 dates between the two uh entities beginning to line up uh you know up until when uh Berg is then uh gunned down on June 18th 1984 so uh you know we we just passed the, the anniversary of that as well and i hope people uh do really kind of uh explore a little bit about Alan Berg i'm i'm going to try and find there there's some uh fun clips of uh Berg uh up on YouTube but uh, i'll throw in a couple in the show notes just so people can get kind of an idea about, um, you know, the type of person that Alan Berg was. I'll also uh, link up to uh, an article that Stephen wrote uh, all the way back in 1985 for uh, Rolling Stone, uh, which is entitled Alan Berg Talk to Death. And this was um, a long-form article Stephen wrote um, before he, he uh, published his book, of course. Uh, but it's got the, the very iconic photo of Berg uh, after he was shot in the driveway. Um so uh, uh, we'll link up to that as well. Um, and, you know, just the two that uh, the, the importance of people like Berg, uh, you know, Stephen and I kind of touched on that earlier, but there really there aren't people like uh, an Allen Berg out there right now uh, and really anywhere, you know, mainstream, alternative, whatever you want to say, left, right. Uh, there, there really isn't someone like Allen Berg. And I, I was really, um, you know, kind of, uh, as I said, I had, you know, found myself having this real affinity, this real uh, love of Berg while, while I was reading the book, obviously, because, you know, I do radio, um, uh, not not the type of radio that Berg does, although, that, that you know, I would love to, uh, to branch out into that maybe at some point. But, uh, you know, there's also just this sort of wonderful, you know, Berg is, is such an insecure person, uh, this sort of desire to be wanted, uh, by people to be loved, um, you know, the desire for people to uh, really connect with him. You know, there are moments in, in the book where he's just sort of, you know, going crazy, you know, pulling out his hair because, you know, he, he doesn't think he did a good show or, you know, it didn't work. He didn't really kind of make the connection uh, that he wanted to. Uh, you know, sometimes he would have his friend, you know, his friends or his ex-wife Judith call into shows uh, when they were going bad so that, you know, they could kind of save it and, you know, so you could sort of uh, get what you wanted to say out. And all of that really 
kind of um, uh, struck with me because I, you know, people who know me, uh, you know, more personally know uh, how insecure I can be about this this radio show and how I'm always, you know, you can you can ask uh, Aaron or Tom. You know, but I endlessly complain about, you know, how I thought the show was shitty or, oh, God, it's not working right or I, I didn't really get to what I wanted to. And, I, and, you know, I think that's just sort of part of being a creative person or, you know, being like an artist or um, or being someone that that's like uh, doing radio because it's such an intimate form of, of art. It's such an, you know, um, where you're you're talking to you know, maybe you're talking like Bill O'Reilly, you know, you could be talking to 3 million people uh, or, or you could be talking to just three people, but either way, it, it's a very direct form of art. You know, it's not, um, it, it's not, it's very personal. It's, it, you know, you, you, you're many times, you, you know, you, you're in a car by yourself. Uh, you're in your house. You're, you're listening to it on headphones. I mean, it, it's like you're there with the person. That person is talking directly to you. Uh, even if you don't like them, <laughs> they're still, you know, they're, they're still talking directly to you. So there's a lot that you kind of put in, uh, into that. Uh, and you kind of have to take a chunk of yourself and, and sort of put it out there. Uh, and it may not be pretty and it may be, uh, uncomfortable or it may be embarrassing and, um, it, it, it can take a toll on you and you can see how much of a toll that took on Allen Berg. And I, I really did connect with that because you know, the more you do radio, the more your show gets more popular and things like that. Um, you know, suddenly you, you incorporate more of yourself. Uh, it's not like a podcast where you can kind of, you know, you can edit things out. Obviously, I, I, I can't really edit anything out of this because um, it has to fit, you know, the two hour format. And it's live. You can't. I'm not I'm not a big fan of, of you know, editing live things. It's, you know, then why listen to it? Uh, so, you know, I really did connect with many of Berg's insecurities and his, uh, his quirks and his sort of neurotic, uh, temperament. Uh, and I think I too, uh, at times like Alan Berg can kind of let emotions sort of run wild. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can rant and rave on, on, on the radio or on Twitter about people I don't like. And, and, uh, you know, I, I talked about this, you know, getting emotional during shows and, and sort of, you know, feeling bad about that and, and whatnot. But, you know, just to say that I think those are all why people do tune in to, uh, to, to talk radio, to, to live radio, to the, you know, the radio that we do here on American Freedom Radio. That's why people are, are coming to it because they want to have this, this personal connection. They want to have this intimate, uh, moment, uh, with, with someone on the radio. Uh, and Alan Berg really kind of personified that, uh, to such a degree, uh, that even when he was, you know, broadcasting to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, all over, uh, you know, the, the sort of central U.S. and the Midwest and things like that, I mean, you know, he, huge range out in Denver uh, for his show. Um, and, and even when he was upsetting all these people, you know, that, that, that's something that really sh struck me um, when you read Talk to Death is that even the people that hated him, you know, like uh, David Lane, uh, you know, member of the order and, and other sort of right wingers and stuff that called in, um, they, they still, uh, they never missed one of his shows. <laughs> um, there's like a wonderful moment uh, that Stephen recounts, I, I think it was uh, David Lane and uh, uh, his friend. I think it's uh, 
William McKenzie, I believe is his name. Uh, and, and Stephen uh, interviewed uh, McKinsey uh, several times and is quoted in the book. And I believe it's McKinsey. You know, and he's talking about how much you know it would, it would upset David Lane to no end hearing you know this, this dirty Jew as he would call him. You know, he's this horrible person. Oh, Alan Berg. You know, he's, he's everything that's wrong with America. Uh, again, you know, one guy on on talk radio. <laughs> but anyway, he would you know you'd go on and on about that. Yet. David Lane was always, you know, always tuning him in. And I, and it's, I believe it's McKinsey who says, you know, he actually liked him, uh, Alan Burr. You know, he actually, he found him really entertaining. He, he, and he found him, you know, entertaining in a way that it wasn't just sort of like, oh, look how stupid this guy is. I mean, he, he genuinely thought he was a good radio personality. He enjoyed listening to the show. So he, he admits to sometimes agreeing with certain things that Berg would say about, you know, be it politics or sex or race, religion, whatever. Uh, he would find himself agreeing with, with Berg at times. Um, and, you know, and he would call in, uh, you know, and sometimes he would complain with Berg, but it was never in this sort of malicious way. Uh, and, and, Mackenzie kind of talks, uh, you know, he recalls, you know, well, I worked late nights and Berg was the, the only person that was with me for, for much of that, you know, cause, uh, Berg did, uh, for, for a while, he was the, the, you know, the late night, uh, radio guy. So, you know, a lot of people that work, um, night jobs or they, you know, they, or they, they just work late or maybe they're up at night, you know, lonely people, things like that. Uh, they'd all tune in to Berg and, McKinsey sort of talks about, uh, you know, how he was he was his friend. He was this person that he could turn to, even though he sort of represented everything that, you know, ideologically he was opposed to. Uh, he had a real connection with Berg. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I was just sort of struck by all of that. Uh, and again, uh, you know, you, you, you can, it's so easy to kind of lose yourself when you're you're doing a radio show every week um, or more than that, you know, and, uh, you know, some people are doing it every day. You can kind of lose yourself. You can kind of forget um, what's important, or, or you become so obsessed with, uh, oh God, is this good? Did I get the right things out in that show, or did I just sort of ramble on and babble? And, and I'm always doing that. But you know, you can forget that you, um, you know, you have to kind of take a step back uh, and, and just sort of, you know, take your time and really kind of have fun with it because it is this wonderful medium that still exists out there and can have such a huge impact uh and you know and i only with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. We hope that, um, you know, we, we see someone like Alan Berg uh, take to the airwaves uh, uh, once again. 
uh, because it, it's, uh, it, you know, it, you can really make a, a huge impact uh, and change people's lives um, through the medium of radio. But anyway, I'll stop pontificating uh, about uh, about Allen Berg and, and radio and stuff. You know, I, I hope it does come across, though, that people should go and get a copy of uh, Talk to Death. Uh, I mean, if you go on Amazon, you can find a, a very, you know, cheap used copy of the book. Um, and, uh, and of course, if you, you know, the more you buy, the more likely, um, Stephen is to, to update some of these books or, or to make them available, uh, you know, as a Kindle or something like that. So definitely, you know, the more you buy, the, the more, the more Stephen gives back with all of that. But anyway, uh, couple of things to, uh, to get to, uh, on, on a more sort of practical note, um, well, oh, actually, one thing I will say, and I, I do, and I do think I want to kind of return to uh, the order specifically, this group, and and kind of talk about uh, some of the uh, the interesting parallels that I found. And maybe we'll do that as a as a full show, or maybe we'll do it as like a bonus podcast or something. But you know, there, the, I do want to stress too again, the they are such a prototype for so many far right white power groups that we see today, but also again, the way that the government uh, sort of responded to the order, because as I said uh, earlier when I in the, in the show today, uh, the order was organic. You know, there weren't, um, there's nothing that I can really see uh, or point to uh, that there was, uh, you know, informants within the group that there were, uh, agent provocateurs that there was some sort of a, a external force within the the order that was you know pushing them into certain directions and, and things like that like the way we saw throughout the 90s and, and today also as well where you know every you know there's FBI agents and ATF all, all those sorts of uh, people are are very much uh you know part of the the fabric of the white power movement and that's not to like take away from them um, or, or to you know to excuse them, but I think that's just reality. Whereas the order really was this organic group that that does sort of uh, is the 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 natural iteration out of uh, Richard Butler and uh, his church and Aryan Nations, which is this you know was like the name of his you know compound up in um, I think it was Hayden Lake, Idaho, uh, where he would hold these big, um, you know, uh, Aryan conferences, like the Aryan World Conference he would hold every year. And he would invite all sorts of um, uh, people within the white power movement, within the neo-Nazi group. I, I believe um, uh, Roy Black was there. Uh, I believe it's Roy Black who, uh, of co- he doesn't run, uh, I think he ran, not Daily Stormer, but the other one, the, the, uh, Maybe it was Dale. No, I forget. Anyway, he runs one of these like, you know, um, neo-Nazi message boards. There's a famous picture of him and, and Ron Paul of all uh, or not of all people, but, you know, him and Don Black. I'm sorry. Don Black um, is his name. You can look him up. You know, he was there. Um, uh, various people within the, the Covenant Sword Arm of the Lord, which is another one of these sort of far right white groups. Uh, and the, the CSA has. Some Siri, you know, there are connections between the CSA, Elohim City, and Timothy McVeigh, of course. And I, I really do uh, want to kind of explore that a little bit more in, in another podcast because um, y- you look at the the organic nature of 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 uh, 
a group like the Order. And uh, you see the commitment that these the, these men had where they were robbing banks. Uh, they were uh, assassinating people. They're robbing armored trucks, uh, sometimes in broad daylight. Uh, they're uh, counterfeiting massive amounts of money. I mean, at one point, um, uh, there's a you know story that in the in Talk to Death that Stephen relates where you know they had just um, they're they're cutting up money. You know, so when they when they would counterfeit the they they, uh, they began with hundred dollar bills and that became too risky. People were were able to spot them. Then they they moved to fifties and then eventually they they started mass producing ten dollar bills because that was a lot easier to pass in stores and things like that. And they're sitting in this room and they're like cutting up you know these sheets into you know regular ten dollar bills and then they would you know they would put dirt on you know they do stuff to make them look older and crumpled. And they're sitting there and there's something like half a million dollars in counterfeit money. Uh, and these guys are cutting it up. And that sort of pales in comparison because, you know, in the other room, they're counting money from a Brinks robbery uh, that, you know, was over three million. So the commitment, I mean, the, the power that the, these uh, 25 people were able to do um, is really astounding. And to see that that was like an organic group and then to see – uh, how the government responds to that, to the order specifically, and how that also becomes a prototype for how they respond to all these things. So just briefly, you know, you look at um, the uh, Gary Yarborough up in Sandpoint, Idaho, lived in this sort of isolated, uh, you know, plot of land not dissimilar from Ruby Ridge, the way that the FBI approached Gary Yarbo, not dissimilar from some of the actions that the government took at Ruby Ridge, where they were, you know, they, they entered his land illegally at one point. They posed as, um, uh, I believe, you know, uh, like uh, National Forest, uh, it's like uh, employees of the National Forest Service, something like that. Uh, they, they, you know, they get involved in this big shootout. Um, you know, very similar uh, in many ways to, to what happened uh, at Ruby Ridge in 1992. Then you, you look at the FBI's response to Bob Matthews, the head of the order, when he's uh, out in uh, uh, Whidbey Island uh, in uh, near Seattle. Uh, and he's basically, you know, he's in his house. He's in this big house on the island. Uh, he's, you know, armed to the teeth. They basically, they, they, they uh, you know, they lob tear gas into his house. They try to go up the stairs to catch him. And basically they, they, the um, uh, FBI agents and the, the police that were there, they basically described it as, you know, it was an unending spray of bullets. And he never stopped firing. He never ran out of ammo. They couldn't get up there. You know, he, he, there was no way they were going to get in there. So what do they do? They drop white phosphorus from a helicopter on top of the house and they burn him alive. Now, that was in 1984, okay? In 1985, uh, authorities in Philadelphia would do a very similar thing to MOVE, which was a far left group. Uh, but they, you know, they, they firebombed their uh, compound uh, and, and MOVE was also very kind of cult like in, in many respects. Uh, and, you know, so, oh, it's fine to, to burn alive cult members. Uh, but the same thing, they dropped a, a firebomb from uh, a helicopter on top of them. And then, of course, in 1993 in Waco, 
Um, and this is exact similar, you know, same thing. They, they start a fire to get rid of this far right cult group. So, you, you know, there, there's some really interesting parallels, um, between, you know, how the government dealt with the, these organic groups in the beginning. And then as you, you sort of move all the way up to these not so organic groups like Timothy McVeigh and his sort of circle of friends and whatnot, or whatever operation McVeigh was involved with, uh, while there might have been people that got to these movements organically, you know, there's nothing organic about uh, Timothy McVeigh's involvement with them. Um, and to see that, that, uh, you know, McV- the, the Turner Diaries, if you think the Turner Diaries had a huge impact on the order, I mean, they had a profound impact on Timothy McVeigh. You know, this is like, you know, he constantly carried the book around with him. Uh, you know, he got in trouble at one point in the army for handing out copies of the Turner Diaries. He made, you know, in all of his letters and correspondence with, um, you know, his friends and his sister, you know, he was, was constantly quoting from the Turner Diaries, trying to get people to read the Turner Diaries. So that had a huge impact on him. Not to mention, of course, you know, there, um, th- this group, the Aryan Republican Army, which I mentioned earlier in, in the show, was, they were also known as the Midwest Bank Robbers. And they uh, were, you know, in, in a lot of ways, is sort of of um like a spin-off of of the order they were a far right neo-nazi uh bank robbing group um that you know did have a political ideology and they did you know if you, you sort of look into the Aryan Republican army there is this sort of vague idea of uh, of how they would put together their you know political plan for America but they are also basically just a, you know, a criminal enterprise that robs banks all over the Midwest. Timothy McVeigh uh, was either helped or participated in this at some point. Um, and if he didn't actually participate, he hung around with lots of ARA guys. There is the uh, the founder of the ARA, Richard Guthrie. I believe it's a. Uh, uh, Richard Guthrie, I'll, I'll try and look that up. But, um, you know, he is also um, uh, possibly, uh, yeah, Richard Guthrie. Uh, he is uh, John Doe number two. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of evidence to, to, to point to uh, Richard Guthrie as being John Doe number two. Uh, and uh, Guthrie, uh, of course, um, dies mysteriously in prison. Um, and this is after he agreed to talk about the whole John Doe number two thing and talk about why um, uh, Trenadue, Jesse Trenadue, um, was murdered in prison. Uh, and Trenadue looked just like Richard Guthrie, including um, a dragon tattoo on his arm. So, uh, you know, there, so, you know, there's a, that, that whole connection right there, um, you know, with this far-right groups, bank robbing. Uh, you know, Elohim City in many ways is a lot like um, Aryan Nations. Uh, you know, only at Elohim City there's Strassmeyer, there's ATF uh, informants, there's FBI informants, there's the... Um, you know, it's funny, the Order hated uh, uh, Morris Dees, who's the, the head of the um, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and, uh, and I'm not, you know, like a, a huge fan of them either. Um, not not for the reasons that you know Nazis uh, dislike them, but you know the the Southern Poverty Law Center also had their own agents uh, undercover in Elohim City and in other places as well. So there's just so many interesting parallels, and it's I think it's a fascinating uh, group to look at 
in the ways that they that they sort of evolved um, from having a political ideology to being a criminal organization to then when you kind of have something like the Aryan Republican Army, which is essentially a criminal organization that has some political ideology. Uh, and also then to see the ways that the government responds to these with, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the firebombing uh, all the way up to, you know, it seems as if then in the 90s, it's really about, well, we have to control these groups. We, we can't let them become too organic. You know, we need to um, dictate how these groups are going to operate. So, yeah, I do want to kind of um, get to all of that. Uh, maybe we'll do that as a bonus podcast because I, I don't know if there's enough uh, right now for me to, to do two hours on or even an hour. But, I, I you know, I want to get into that, and definitely I'll, I'll try and get Stephen back on. But I have a few other things. Um, I want to mention uh, the, that um, we're I'm in the, the very early – Stages of uh, get uh, bringing on a, a sponsor for my show, and maybe hopefully, um, you know, we'll see what we can do with that. But uh, I do want to uh, give a shout out, at least, you know, this episode is brought to you in part uh, from uh, my friend Parker Prokjek. I'm sure Parker's gonna, you know, hate me for mispronouncing her name, but you can find her website is uh, Parker P A R K E R. P-R-A-C-J-E-K dot com. I'm going to link up to that in the show notes. Uh, but, but, uh, I know Parker, uh, she, and she runs, um, she's, uh, into, uh, homeopathy and herbal medicine, things like that. So I'm sure there's, uh, you know, a lot of people out there that are into that as well. And she has a, an excellent store on her website where she sells all sorts of, uh, you know, natural homeopathic medicine. I'm a huge fan of the repair solve and, uh, you can uh, you can get that for the low price of three dollars right now, but there is a special promo code so you can get up to fifty percent off until September twenty fourth if you use the promo code Fall seventeen. That's Fall seventeen F A L L one seven, and uh, you can uh, use that until the twenty fourth. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, to to um, see if Parker wants to be a little bit more involved in the show, but there's Lots of really interesting stuff up on her website. Um, she does all sorts of like extracts and things like that. Um, lemon balm extract. She's got uh, dandelion root uh, extract, which is very, very good for you. Uh, you know, I highly recommend that. And the repair solve is great. So it's basically like, a, you know, like an all purpose um, solve for like anything. You can use it for chapped lips. I use it in my hair. Um, cause I've got very dry skin. It's great for, um, you know, getting rid of scars and things like that. Uh, bad burns. Don't put it on like, you know, right after the burn, but once the burn sort of uh, begins to heal over, you can use that. It'll, you know, it, it, I had a very bad burn in my hand, uh, use the repair solvent. It was just like night and day and it's all natural. All of the stuff that Parker makes is grown uh, on her rooftop, um, here, uh, in New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, like the repair solve is, uh, uh, Calun, Cal, Calendula, plantain, yarrow, uh, comfrey, lavender, beeswax, olive oil, and shea butter, all natural. Uh, you know, there's, there's no GMOs or anything like that. So anyway, uh, just wanted to say that, that Parker just launched her new website and that's Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, did I get that right? Yeah, Project. 
P-R-A-C-J-E-K.com. You can, uh, of course, find them in the show notes. Uh, she just launched a new website, and there is a sale on all of her products until September 24th with Fall 17. So something to look forward to. Uh, I'd love to, you know, we'll do, hopefully, I'll, 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 we'll have a little bit more uh, in terms of that, but, uh, you know, trying to get Parker to, to maybe uh, sponsor the show. But anyway, just wanted to, to mention that. Also wanted to uh, give a big thank you to Tom Secker and Aaron Franz for becoming uh, subscribers on Patreon. Both of them uh, signed up uh, over the weekend. I, of course, uh, signed up for their Patreons as well. Uh, so if you want to support me, uh, Tom, or Aaron, you can always go to our various Patreon pages. Mine is, of course, Pierce uh, patreon.com slash Pierce Redmond if you want to support me. Of course, if you want to support American Freedom Radio, we are also on Patreon. You can also go to the Donate uh, button. If you, you click the Donate button on AmericanFreedomRadio.com, you can uh, become a subscriber through PayPal. I, of course, have all that linked up as well on my website if you want to uh, support the work, if you like what you hear. Uh, and also, uh, just a, a few quick little updates. Uh, we're doing uh, – Tom Secker and I are going to be talking about the original House of Cards, the actually good version of House of Cards for the uh, subscriber podcast for, I think, for the next three months for me. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, series one, two, and three, uh, one every month, obviously. And that's going to be coming out very soon. Uh, Tom and I should be recording this Sunday. So, uh, look out for the subscriber podcast, uh, sometime, um, next week, um, hopefully Monday or Tuesday, but we'll see. Uh, you know, and, uh, of course, uh, if you haven't seen the original version of House of Cards, go out and watch it. Just stop whatever you're doing, uh, and, and watch it. It's so good. Uh, so we're going to be discussing that. And also, uh, some updates, uh, for people out there that are still, uh, concerned about, uh, Porkin's great game and, and Kristoff. Uh, Kristoff and I, uh, chatted for a while over the weekend, um, you know, d- in spite of, of some of the, uh, you know, dare I say conspiracy theories out there that, you know, Christoph and I aren't friends anymore or that, uh, you know, this is, that the, the radio show is too much for me to deal with. So, you know, I've been neglecting doing that. Uh, none of that is true. Christoph and I, um, we've been in contact, uh, you know, throughout the, you know, since when we, we sort of went on hiatus. Uh, and Christoph and I uh, chatted for a while. Uh, over the weekend about the show, we are bringing it back. It is happening. I can, I can say that, you know, I'm not just sort of, uh, th- th- this isn't uh, me kind of, you know, dragging you along with, with promises and things. Um, I can even say that we have a firm, uh, timetable. Either, uh, we hope to start recording again in December, uh, when Christoph is done with, uh, school stuff. If not December, then I promise you, January, we will have a brand new episode out, start the new year. Um, it's going to be a bit of a new show. We're going to kind of switch up the format a little bit. Um, we'll, and, we'll, of course, we'll have much more about that. But there, there just isn't too much uh, going on at the moment in, in Central Asia. Uh, and that doesn't really seem to be the focus of, of – uh, you know, the, the sort of geopolitical stuff that Christoph and I talk about. So we will be kind of revamping the format a little bit. We're going to be kind of taking a slightly different uh, angle to it. I think, it, you know, it's still going to be interesting. We're still going to be talking about Central Asia, obviously, uh, but not maybe not quite as much 
Um, and uh, and you, you'll notice too, even Kristoff has sort of stopped using the the new great game uh, name for for Twitter and things like that because there really just isn't actually anything going on over there. But we'll have more on that, of course, as we as we get closer to it. But I just wanted to, you know, people out there are still kind of freaking out and losing their shit over the the Porkins Great Game Show not being up. It will be up again. You know, we will be doing regular episodes. We will be doing bonus episodes for it for um, people on Patreon that uh, become patrons of us. That's all going to happen. All right. So, you know, just just hold tight. Um, you know, try and try and do your best. If, if you can't, you know, if you need if you need your fix, Christoph is back on Twitter. OK, so he is he is tweeting again, not as much as he you know, as he was, he's still, you know, he's, he's got some important things to finish off with, with school and things like that. Uh, but, you know, Christoph is tweeting again. So if you if you want to uh, get to, you know, a little bit of a fix, you can always do that. Anyway, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening today. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking with a good friend, Pat McKenna. So if you have any OJ related stuff, please do send it my way. And uh, Pat and I are going to be exploring uh, OJ, his imminent release and anything else. So anyway, thank you all so much for joining me and I will be talking to you very soon. No rules, no rules, no taboo topics, no taboo topics, no fear of doom, no fear of doom. We are, we are American Freedom Radio, American Freedom Radio. Since the beginning, civilizations have risen and fallen. Rome, ancient Persia, Mongolia, Britain, and now America. The fallen by natural disasters, broken families, moral decay, lack of preparedness and conflict. Don't let this happen to you. Are you prepared? Would you like to help others prepare? AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com is looking for distributors. Email BugOutAmerica at USA.com. Go to AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, a veteran-owned and operated company. But do it today. This is Rick Simpson, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. And I hope people support American Freedom Radio, and I hope people vote with their dollars and really understand the value of having American Freedom Radio, because that's my family. If you love me at all, Jack Blood, support American Freedom Radio. Like, my family has literally disowned me in American Freedom Radio. Danny and Don and those guys, those are my actual family. So please, please support these guys because they have all the technology. They have all these great things that they're going to do. But obviously, they can't do it all by themselves. So not only would I like to see you support them, I'd like to see you retweet them and repost them and really get involved and get on the, the bandwagon, so to speak, on doing that do-it-yourself promotion because they're a do-it-yourself radio network, and, uh, and we just need that so much. And when we're not invading some sovereign nation or setting it on fire from the air, which is more fun for our Nintendo pilots, then 
Then we're usually declaring war on something here at home. Did you ever notice that about us? We love to declare war on things here in America. Anything we don't like about ourselves, we declare war on it. We don't do anything about it. We just declare war on it. It's the only metaphor, the only metaphor we have in our public discourse for solving problems, declaring war. We have to declare a war on everything. We have a war on crime, the war on poverty, the war on litter, the war on cancer, the war on drugs. But you ever notice we got no war on homelessness, huh? No war on homelessness. You know why? There's no money in that problem. No money to be made off of the homeless. If you could find a solution, if you could find a solution to homelessness where the corporate swine and the politicians could steal a couple of million dollars each, you see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty quick. I'll guarantee you that. I will guarantee you that. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio and service to the community with strength, wisdom and loyalty. The founders of AFR wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com or volunteer by emailing AmericanFreedomRadio at Ymail.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs and artillery batteries not included. Prepare your mind to experience American Freedom Radio.